1: Hey, everybody. I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne. <laughs> Yo, hold on, man. And his mom.
0: How is this going to work?
1: Uh, oh, That's man. right, man. Just turn back around and be orange. Just so good. Yeah, man. I'm
0: going to do that. <laughs>
1: I think the hot will always be a voice for the people. Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, we are What's the Headline, the podcast. How you doing
0: today, man? Man, I'm doing well. I got this, like, Martin Scorsese taxi driver lighting, so, uh, yeah, man, I, <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm in a gritty, you know, 70s grindhouse film.
1: Yeah, we all have to become professional filmmakers in this Zoom culture, you know?
0: Uh, yeah, man, especially when we're on the road, like, that's, that's the trick of it. I've done Zoom meetings, you know, from my car, and, you know, we did that interview with the locks, and I laughed because, you know, Styles P was, like, switching lanes, doing the interview, and... Still came out dope,
1: you know. You with your mom, right?
0: I am. I am. I got my COVID test and um, you know, I've been low key with my parents. I'm I'm out here in Pittsburgh for a minute and uh yeah, it's been it's been nice to be around family after a year where I really didn't see them too much.
1: And what's your mom's zoom in cause she like <laughs> trying to be like like you know all in the video like yeah <laughs> my
0: mom's my mom's got some like 97 dame dash you know <laughs> jermaine dupree puff daddy you know and uh me you know i wish she had more of a should night stance personally because uh you know that's how she was when <laughs> no i'm kidding
1: yeah she's uh, so, yeah. she trying to function, man.
0: have you had uh you i mean your father <laughs> have you had any uh you know children interrupt the zoom meeting
1: you know, um, I haven't had children. I've had one of my sons. He'll like make a cameo or two. It's usually my dog though, just barking his head off. This dude yeah. was crazy. Like he's a he's a wild one. So.
0: I mean, you see it in the podcast with mine. You remember that sketch on Living Color when Jim Carrey would be in the background of the newscast, like always <laughs> trying to God get on. Likes. That's how that's how Theo does, man. <laughs> you know, if it's not a bark, it's a cameo. Um,
1: but he's quiet, at least. He's typically like just like kind of just hanging out, just like a quick one just to let you yeah. know he's there. You
0: know? Yeah, so, yeah. He's trying to get discovered, man. You know, he's looking for that come up.
1: Yeah. What a year, man. Everything has changed, you know.
0: Yes, indeed, man. Crazy time. So, you know, it's funny. You and I debated, you know, whether we would have this episode. Obviously, last uh, the last episode, we presented our year-end. Longest podcast um, we've history. ever done. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. That was, uh, that was the yeah, apocalypse now of, of podcasts. But it was dope. And I was really, really proud of it. Um, you know, I heard a lot of good compliments about our list. Um, definitely got some as happens every year. We anticipated some people telling us where we got it wrong. And I think in our headline, you know, we leaned into that. We want to know that we want to create that discussion because at the end of the day, it's not about who you forget. It's about creating a conversation. Um, what were the ones you
1: saw? What were the recurring you saw? Man,
0: I saw a lot of people that were coming for our throats with, uh, pause, uh, <laughs> with uh, R.A. the Rugged Man, All My Heroes Are Dead. And, you know, R.A., unlike so many artists today, you know, takes, you know, long, you know, we were talking five plus years between projects. And, you know, we started supporting this campaign when we were still publishing on The Daily. And, um, you know, there's a lot of great things I can say about that album. There was a lot of albums that you and I, both on the podcast and in the lead up, were, you know, very, uh, very supportive of that didn't make the list. So that was one. Um, Conway the Machine, From a King to a God, was another. I mean, we had Conway on last year's list, courtesy of the Griselda album. And, you know, this year we had one from Gunn, one from Benny. Um, You know, not to say that that has anything to do with Conway, but we definitely you know, I think are, are frontline supporters of the Griselda movement. Um, and the other, uh, it was, you know, Elzai and J.R. Swift, which I know we spent some time talking about on the podcast. I like the album. Um, I know you made some points about just, you know, how it was mixed and things like that, that that stuck out to you, which I went back and listened to the project and I thought those were very valid points you made. Um, and the other, man, we got, you know, it's it's so funny when, artists get involved too we had some members of Arrested Development not speech but other guys that you know told us we totally dropped the ball on Arrested Development's new album which I listened to um, when it came out but it's funny because I would imagine more than any publication you and I you know are two AD fans you know legacy
1: for sure for sure
0: and if nothing else you know that discourse makes me go and revisit you know Arrested Development's album and it makes me revisit all these things but I saw a lot of, uh, a lot of support,
1: you know. You know, it's interesting. Um, It's interesting that people care. I think it's a great thing that people care. And actually to me, uh, it's an honor because, you know, people could easily just say, who are these dudes? Like, you know, why does this publication matter? Like, you know, uh, but the fact that people care, I believe shows that we've earned some respect in the space and that people uh, value our opinion. And so... I'm actually going to call an audible, you know, we we got a um, kind of a run of show that we want to cover, but I think we should open it up with Grammy nominations. Now, this happened uh, three, four weeks ago now, but we've Mm -hmm. always been a publication to not necessarily be first to, like, discuss something, but try to discuss it in the most thoughtful and comprehensive way possible. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also, uh, you know, there's a um, Lifetime Achievement Grammy, too, that I think, Makes this, this, this storyline um, current and relevant again. So let's, let's talk about the Grammy nominations. Um, you know, first of all, the Grammys have always been a very complicated thing for hip hop. Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince won the first rap Grammy ever. At the time, they were considered to be um, pop, very commercial rap. And um, even though um, their albums and Will and Jeff were very popular, Uh, you know in in the hip-hop community people saw songs like parents just don't understand and things like that as being very um you know uh, you know kind of hip-hop like not like uh, the hardcore stuff that was going on like the one dmc's and lcd's and uh you know people like that of that era and so there's always kind of been this love hate thing but people also as much as they you know public enemy uh you know Chuck, uh, Flavor Flav, you know, had his famous son who gives a fuck about a goddamn Grammy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the thing is that even though people say that, it's a duality. On the one hand, people think that, but on the other hand, people feel really a certain kind of way whenever they're snubbed, or if an album that they think should win, like a good kid, Mass over or Macklemore's album, um, you know, uh, doesn't get it. People really feel a certain way, you know, so um you know, it ties into the, the 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 thing I was mentioning before about validation and like, you know, how people feel about our list. The reality is people want validation. Artists want validation for their work, whether it's from the fans or from the culture or from, you know, some like, uh, publication or some organization. People want it or else, you know, these things wouldn't exist. There wouldn't be Grammy Awards and BT Awards and MTV Music Awards and all that. So, um, the Grammys this year. Um, give me some of your takeaways from from the nominations.
0: Yeah, well, I, I want to add one thing to what you said that I learned and didn't previously consider. You know, I was listening to the Joe Budden podcast a few weeks ago, and they had um, Summer Walker's manager on there, who I believe also manages Westside Boogie, who we've covered a lot, and, um, and uh, Black. And he was saying, you know, Grammy awards and nominations are also opportunities for artists to raise their prices so to speak raise their value when they're going to brand partnerships or when they're doing touring so I mean there's very real financial implications too and you're right that just speaks to this complicated relationship and duality of on one hand we know that these awards are not entirely merit-based but on the other they can be kingmakers to some extent and um, or queenmakers, makers you know and there's a lot of reverberating impact and I know just as a damn near 20-year journalist which artists to write Grammy winning and Grammy nominated with like that is you know it's part of an artist's um thumbnail bio so that being said um you know this year's really interesting because as as far as I can tell it's going to be a first-time winner regardless in the best rap album category which is always when they nominations are announced, that's always where I go first, just as a fan. And I think, you know, in the wake of, in the post Macklemore era, when the Grammys, I think, really felt some heat um, in this category, it's always been interesting. I mean, in the last few years, we've seen, you know, Nipsey Hussle, while he was still alive, get a nomination. We saw, you know, Pusha T get a nomination. We've watched, um, you know, Rhapsody, which I think a lot of folks, um, you know, with Layla's wisdom, were so pleased to see. And, you know, there's a lot of recognition that I don't think was always there. And I definitely think that's true of this year, regardless of what album we all individually feel should win. Um, So, you know, we have uh, Gibbs and uh, Alchemist, Alfredo, which, you know, we included in our list. We have Nas, King's Disease. Um, We have Royce the Five-Nine, Allegory. uh, Jay Electronica's album. And uh, what's the other one I'm missing?
1: uh let's see um it's a newer artist right um
0: it is and i'm i'm looking um bear with me one second, because it's one it's we talk oh d smoke um right right d smoke yeah yeah you know which again we spent some time talking about on our listen and i believe that is uh that's 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 it am i correct yeah i think so so no matter what in this category this is a first-time winner um you know for their own merits and, um, you know, Nas is, we've spent years talking about that. I mean, like Snoop, like uh, Ice Cube, Nas has never won um, the, the, a Grammy. And that is, that's, that's crazy because, I mean, you know, he's a, you know, arguably top five, top 10 MC of all time and to not have that recognition. So this is a big stage for Nas. And this is a year that I feel like he stands a good chance to compete whereas in other years um and let's be clear the illmatic you know that that did not exist at the time of illmatic the best rap album um you know so this is this is a really important stage and a big night for Nasir
1: so who do you think takes this one
0: I think it's going to be Nas um I cannot imagine uh you know just optics wise you know you and I spent a lot of time I mean Jay Electronica is billed as his album but Jay-Z played as much of a feature role on that album as Ghostface did on the purple tape. Um, so what does that look like if Jay Electronica wins? Um, and also, I mean, Jay Electronica is such an enigma. Does he even show up? <clears throat> so I think it's a big night for Nas. I mean, my personal, you asked me my album of the year last week, and I, I went on here and I said Royce the Allegory. I really am happy if Royce wins. But truthfully, I'm happy about all these albums. Um, you know, I would have loved to have seen Benny on the list. I don't think Buster Rhymes was eligible given how late in the year he dropped. But, uh, you know, there's not one I'm rooting against, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I'm not even, I haven't seen the dates, but it's, it's not certain to me that even Benny was eligible because he dropped pretty late too. Yeah. Um, but um, if he was, that was definitely an oversight. Um, you know, so I, I, I uh, alluded to this before, but One of the things that brings us back into the discussion is Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five are now being uh, awarded a Lifetime Achievement uh, Grammy. And uh, this is something they did with Public Enemy a few years ago. And, you know, I'm very mixed about this. On the one hand, I think it's phenomenal that these artists are finally getting the recognition they deserve. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. The first uh, rap act inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. There's a lot of controversy around that because people are like, does hip hop belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And that argument exists kind of on both sides, you know, on the rock side. And people yeah. are like, you know, being purists on the hip hop side, people are like, why do we need validation from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, but the fact is that there is no other kind of um, museum or you know, Hall of Fame for yes. music. Like, it, it's really the music, it's become the Music Hall of Fame. Like, right. they should just go ahead and re- re- rename it, which I think would solve a lot of things, and, you know, just call it the Music Hall of Fame, and put everyone in it. Um, but, you know, that being said, you know, name change you know, aside, um, that was a great thing to see them in there, and it ushered in a wave of, of hip-hop artists that have followed since. Um, for Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five and... You know, even that name is a bit strange because Flash was the DJ, uh, which was great. And we all know that DJs led the culture back then and led the music. But we all know that Grandmaster Melly Mel was a huge part of the reason why that group ascended to what it became. Um, you know, the other members being Keith Cowboy, Raheem, Raheem, um, Raheem Scorpio, Mr. Ness, and Keith mm-hmm. Creole. Um, the song that, that kind of put them on that the map being the message was one of the seminal, um, um, rap songs. It is, it broke through to the mainstream. It changed rap from, which was predominantly a party format back then. Um, you know, chanting, you know, a lot of like singing on the choruses and like, you know, rap note disco beats and stuff like that to something that was a real political statement. Like it became the voice of an entire, um, you know, a uh, group of people, you know, it became the voice of the streets and it, it, uh, really gave people insight into what life was like in the South Bronx and many, um, you know, um, ghettos across the country, you know, uh, it was that song that uh, I think put rap on the map, not just Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So for them not to have gotten a Grammy um, or some sort of recognition before, you're, you're scratching your head and wondering because that song was released back in 1982, I believe. Yeah. So you know, we're coming up on you know nearly 40 years, um, and so you know, it. So, but you know, but it's great that they're being recognized now. Um, but you wonder, you know. And then the other thing is they're way beyond the message, too. You know, they have White Lines, which is a, a similar kind of social commentary. Um, you know, you know, you and know also a dance about, record, too. You know, I'm uh, talking about the ills of, like, drug addiction. Um, you know, something that, you know, you didn't hear too much back then. Uh, and it's ironic given how much hip-hop now pushes, um, you, know, you know, drug usage. You know, think about that. One of the first songs in rap music to talk about, um you know drugs was a very much a, a psa uh, against drug consumption and now like almost every song is advocating strenuously the use of drugs like yeah how do we how do we get to that point you know um but then scorpio was to your point was um that was like a electric um electro funk electro funk yeah um yeah that was a, back in the day you would see like uh the younger Reggie Williams, like you know, the popping locking onto that song. You know? Well,
0: that's one of the things I really admire about you. I know we come on here and we we make jokes at each other from time to time, but you know, and I think it's so, you know, it's so cool about A F H is that you know we had a number of number of um, cooks in the kitchen, but it's not often like you know I'm I'm I was born in '84, so you know I missed all of that and had to kind of do the knowledge later. But to have somebody like you who lived through that, I mean, that was, you know, in your, you know, coming of age love affair with hip hop, those records were dropping. And I've heard you many times say that, you know, Melly Mel, for a point in your life, was your goat. That was your favorite MC. So to have that context, and it's amazing to me, too, because I think that any, you know, hip hop journalist worth their salt knows, you know, the message. They know white lines. But after that, and throughout the years, you've really spotlit. Even in just our, you know, conversations, you know, the catalog long after Grandmaster Flash and the Fur- Furious Five was in vogue. you know, you go with the deeper cuts that show that well into the late 80s, early 90s, Melly Mel still, you know, was putting it down. And I know I've seen, you know, Mel perform at SOBs at a, you know, Zulu Nation anniversary. Um, and he is phenomenal to this day as an MC, as a, as a stage performer. So I'm happy they get it. But you're right. It's 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 revisionist history a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, um, no. But you know, and not to take away from Flash either because obviously he was, um, you know, pretty uh, influential and in in bringing DJ culture to the mainstream too. Like the Adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the Wheels of Steel was, uh, you know, uh, like a showcase of turntablism that people had not heard. You know, Jeff, Jesse, Jeff took it to a different level, bringing it back to the Fresh Prince when they dropped their albums but before that you know flash was the, the standard bearer for turntablism and you know there's that scene in wild style that i kind of seen where you're in Grandma's kitchen Flash's kitchen yeah. yeah and he's going ham like you know on, on the wheels um but not to that song but yeah um but you know ultimately i'm very happy that they get this kind of recognition i love seeing pioneers getting just due i think that a lot of times uh, they're overlooked. You know, I think that a lot of people start their history with LL and, and Run DMC. Yeah. Um, you know, the Flash and Furious Five and you know, Houdini and Fat Boys and all those people before that um, are, are people who should be getting their flowers. And you know, speaking of which, is Curtis Blow. Curtis Blow was of that era too, and for many, he was a father of hip hop. In fact, Run and Run DMC was called Son of Curtis Blow. Before he became known as Run, and when he was his DJ, uh, yeah, yeah, when he was his DJ, yeah, and uh, you know Curtis Blow is a person who just had a heart transplant a couple weeks ago. You know, he he had a pretty devastating heart attack back in 2016. Survived that, had a surgery, a pretty major surgery in 2019, and eventually just needed a full blown transplant, which he got earlier this month. Um, And he's it was successful. He's at home and uh, recovering, supposedly, but. It's a reminder that you know we should give these guys their flowers while they're here, uh, not wait till they are, are gone to celebrate them. You know, this is a guy who, you know, has songs like Basketball and the Breaks, and you know, one of the seminal Christmas uh, rap, yeah Seminole's Christmas rapping. Um, you know, eight uh, so million stories. Eight I mean, just stories. joints. Yeah. yeah, AJ just you know yeah. the total. He's got you know he was the biggest. He was LL before LLO. He was the first like. um, you know, pop, uh, massive, successful solo artist in hip hop, you know, he was a guy who didn't have a DJ, you know, it wasn't DJ and such and Curtis Blow. Yeah. It was Curtis Blow.
0: And so. Curtis Blow's music has aged really well, in my opinion. I remember it was one of the greatest things that I remember MTV doing. And you might've been at Viacom at the time, but in 98, I was, I was in eighth grade, just about to get ready for high school. And they, they took like a week to just dedicate to hip-hop and they ran a lot of produced documentaries and they really um, spent, they shined a light on Curtis Blow on the Beastie Boys on Run DMC on a host of those guys. And for me, I mean, this was, you know, Prime, Cash Money, Rough Riders, you know, that era, Ruckus. And I just remember being exposed to that, you know, Curtis Blow's catalog in particular and running out and buying, you know, the Mercury records, those compilations, they used to do like essential funk. And I just remember being a 13 year old and Curtis Blow sounded so great. And to realize that he was what the first uh, gold selling um yeah, yeah. you know soloist is uh you know in rap was not surprising to me. I mean, just such command and you know, really a pillar of Harlem's um, you know, hip hop history too.
1: Absolutely. So some other legends that were we'll recognized this week uh via another platform and one that's come to like means so much in 2020. It's one of the, you know, people talk about all the bad things that have happened in 2020. There have been some really great things that come of it, too. And one of them is Versus, you know, the platform that Swiss Beats and Timberland created to showcase, uh, you know, artists, rappers, producers, uh, you know, who are legends. Like, I love them to showcase their catalog in a fun, slightly competitive way against their peer. And last night was the final one of the year. uh, Too Short versus E-40 representing the Bay, but you know, what, what were your thoughts about that versus?
0: Man, I just, I love it. I, these are two guys who are hip hop legends. And I know we throw that word around a lot, but I'm going to capitalize the L on this one. And what I love about it is you're absolutely right. Like 2020 has presented a new platform um, apart from Clubhouse that can you know, change, um, that can really shine a light. And these are two artists who have cultivated careers without that light. I mean, Too Short, especially because he started, you know, some years before 40, you know, dealt with rejection from a lot of the late 1980s, you know, East Coast based hip hop magazines, you know, and was just trash for his rhyme style and, you know, faced a lot of backlash. And 40, I feel like is, you know, criminally slept on. I feel like he is, you know, in a lot of ways as innovative as your cool G raps, you know, Um, but just. Because of Vallejo, California, because of um, the way that media is run, maybe because of production choices and things like that, just doesn't get the due. So to have everyone's attention on a Saturday night with a new album coming out, like a, a joint effort, which they've made collabo albums before, I just loved it. And, and then apart from that, it's a really good matchup. Like I mean, these are guys that both have roots in the 80s. Um, they were label mates for over 10 years. And then they both had this resurgence in the mid-90s, or excuse me, in the mid-2000s, because the guys in Atlanta and Miami were deeply inspired by them. You know, your T-Pains and your Little Johns and, you know, so on and so forth. So their catalogs have this nice, you know, kind of similar trajectory. And that really played out into, um, you know, the battle itself.
1: Yeah, you know, and there were some really cool moments, too. Like, this was reported to be the most expensive verses ever. Uh, you know, and they had the cars on the set, um, which was dope. Um, live DJ, yeah, uh, live DJ. Did you know? Did you know what kind of cars those
0: were? One looked like a Falcon, with like a like a mid late '60s Falcon, which is funny because that is a car. Um, and I think the other one looked like a late '60s Mustang. Both of those cars, or as a Cougar, which is the same body, but those cars are are like Bay Area cars. You know, like the same way the Cadillac is in in Houston. Or in Philly, you know, you hear Black Thought always rapping about Bonnevilles and Buicks. Like, it was done to a T. And I don't know, you know, who foots that bill? Is that Versus? Is that Empire that puts out the album? I don't know. But it looked Based
1: on, you know, the huge Ciroc logo in the background, I'm I'm assuming that uh, (laughs) that Mr. Diddy uh, footed that bill. You know, there are rumors out there that it was the most expensive production and that was $500,000. Uh, you know, I have produced a lot of shows in my time, and I can tell you it was definitely not a five hundred thousand yeah. dollar production. Or if it was, somebody got beat. Uh, but maybe, somebody got a brown uh, bag. Yeah. yeah <laughs> what, what it what it may have been was a five hundred thousand dollar sponsorship. You know, mm. that, that's often the case where uh, you know, production could have been whatever it was, maybe fifty thousand, or whatever. I don't know if there's travel and like COVID protocols. Yeah. Like, things more expensive too because you got to people got to be tested. You got to have people on set like monitoring making sure that people are observing all the protocols. There's a lot of stuff that COVID has brought that's expensive, but uh, it wasn't a $500,000 production, but it was definitely an awesome production, you know, and cool to see these guys. Um, you know, I, I love how E-40 and and, and short but uh, both showed a lot of love to other Bay Area rappers, shouting out as many as they possibly could. Uh, you know, E-40 saying that Tupac was the Bay Area's greatest rapper, I thought was pretty, pretty huge, you know, because people don't really think of Pac as people, I think, associate Pac with LA more than they do with the Bay, you know, given mm-hmm. his death row affiliation and how hard he went, you know, in his later years. But he did start in the Bay, you know, it was... Marin uh, County, yeah. Yeah, it was Digital Underground that, that gave him his start. And I think, speaking of dancers, uh, Curtis Blow being the DJ for, um, you know, for Curtis Blow, uh, Tupac was a dancer for Digital Underground. And So he got his his home was the Bay. And if you listen to that early pop, that revolutionary pop, that Black Panther pop, very much steeped in that Oakland sensibility, you know. And so to me, just the whole versus was, um, you know, an ode to Bay Area hip hop as much as it was those two guys. They really, the two of them put that area on the map and they represented it to the fullest last night. So, you know, I thought it was dope.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you know, those guys are unifiers, both of them. I mean, you know, I know people love to make a big to do about you know E forties, you know, riding with Pac against Biggie, which you know never came to anything. Um, but these are guys that collaborate with everyone. They've been very, you know, um, supportive of of new generations. You know, like you know whether you're talking about G Easy or Jay Stalin or whomever. You know, these guys come in and they really are ambassadors of that culture. And yeah, I mean, just really, really great to see E-40 is a character. I've gotten to interview him a few times over the years and um, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly generous with his time. Brilliant businessman. I've never interviewed Short, but I've um, I've spent a little bit of time with him just in rooms and, you know, group conversations and, you know, just a beacon of charisma. And that came out in the thing, I, you know, E-40's name comes from uh, his ability as, as legend has it to, you know, d- drain a 40 ounce on the quick and quickly grab another. And now he's, you know, obviously in the liquor and spirits business with Earl Stevens winery, but uh, he got a little toe up and I saw some, uh, actually our, our guy, Justin Hunt, the company man posted uh, like a little uh, gif of, of 40, like deliberately stumbling back and forth. And it just made me laugh this morning.
1: Yeah, man. Um, you know, another great thing that came out of it is they announced uh, a forthcoming album featuring, you know, Forty Short and Ice Cube and Snoop, uh called Mount Westmore. Um, mm. you know, I guess it may be a working title, but like that it that'll be amazing to kinda of unite the OGs of the of, of Northern Cali and the OGs of Southern Cali
0: Man, I love this. Um just as I'm sure our readers will say, I'll be the bad guy in this one. I'm always a little bit skeptical because you know, we all remember those two incredible songs, Hello and Chin Check with Cube, you know, kind of like, hey, we'll bring an WA back without easy. Um, and, and no matter what, those are great records that live forever. You know, Snoop a few times in his career has assembled these supergroups, some involving MC8, some involving J.O. Felony, King T, Goldie Loke, different people. There was, what, Warzone, and I think the other one was First Generation, and they never, they never delivered. But even if we get a dope one song or a three-pack, um, I'll be happy with it. And we're also living in an age right now where those collaborations and those, those projects are a hell of a lot easier than they were even, you know, 10 years ago. Um, but whenever I see Cube's name involved, um, uh, man, like that one, this could be really something special if it happens.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure.
0: Um, yeah, man. So, I mean, a lot happened too. you. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you as we talk about the early days of hip hop and the pioneers, is, you know, breaking. I call it breaking cuz Crazy Legs checked me years ago. Other people might know it as breakdancing, but it's now an Olympic sport. Um, you mentioned, you know, young Reggie Williams with Scorpio on. What does this mean for you, especially as somebody who I feel like more than me and my contextual lens got to watch um breaking be the the greatest show on earth.
1: You know, it's interesting because you and I we covered this on site when they announced that it was under consideration. And I think Mm -hmm. at the time it was thought that it was kind of a done deal. It just needed to go through the uh, stamp of approval and be official. Um, I'm mixed about this one too, man. Uh, On the one hand, I love it when hip hop gets recognition from any kind of like global, uh, you know, platform, organization, whatever it may be. And the Olympics have been around for, what, thousands of years now. And, Seems like it, yeah. you have know, got, um, so to have something that, that, is, that is that ingrained in human culture, recognize, uh, you know, hip-hop culture, and I think it's important We step back. You know, we, we often very casually reference the music as hip-hop, but hip-hop is a culture, right, and comprised of four elements. A lot of people try and sneak in the fifth being fashion is not the case. There are four elements of hip-hop. It's MC, DJing, breaking and graffiti and I've got it on my arm and I'll show you out one day when I'm wearing a short sleeve shirt, too, right? the yeah, presentation man. of the culture. right? Um, so, you know, I think that emceeing has clearly become a prominent extension, most prominent extension of hip hop culture. Uh, you know, DJing is probably second now, even though it started off as the first. Uh, graffiti comes in and out. Um, you know, you get, you get, uh, you know, it's more on the artistic level where you'll, you'll see, sometimes see street exhibits and things like that, Art Basel, you'll see it in museums, um, you know, when Banksy is discussed, you'll, you'll, you'll get, you know, conversations about, you know, graffiti, but Breakin has been one that um, had a huge, huge, huge rise in popularity in the early 80s, you know, you had movies like, you know, going back to Melly Mel, one of his best songs ever was Beat Street, the King of the Beat, see him rocking that beat from across the street. Um, that 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 film was a phenomenal representation of what breaking culture was in New York. Um, and then you also had the West Coast version, which I love, and many others love, but a lot of purists at the time, uh, I think primarily probably people from New York who were really in the culture, um, you know, had a visceral reaction against Breaking the movie. I love Breaking. I think everyone outside of New York loved Breaking because for us, that was our first vision of it. And Turbo, um, we've celebrated on on, on the site a number of times on socials and was like actually replied back to us, which was like a highlight for me. Ozone, you know, people like that were just phenomenal. Um, you know, so having something that's so near and dear to me. Represented so it had that moment like in the '80s. Now say it's like a two-year moment or so, and it's it's always it's often the McDonald's commercial that like uh, whenever it gets a McDonald's commercial, yeah, it's either gonna go it's out of here and forever forever like going or else yeah. it, like it's reached the height of its, its its fad nature, and like it has a plummet. And you know I think that for breaking, um, once it kind of hit that like you know fever high uh, pitch. Um, it descended, and you know, it never went away, but it became like jazz music and blues music and things like that. Something that just was um, a uh, a part of the culture that was present, but never ever to become like mainstream again. Um, but it's there. You know, Rocksteady Crew has its uh, festival every year, things like that. And it became an international sensation. You know, you because it cuts uh, through language, right? Yeah, you see, so like. You know the best break 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 dancers or breakers would be, um, you know, from uh, countries in Asia. You know, and you saw like Red Bull picking it up and things like that, and do like the evolution is insane. Like people now can do stuff that it's it's just like watching, you know, Michael Jordan, you know, LeBron versus like a, a, a Bob Cousy or like a, you know whoever back in the day, like. It's just a completely different game and level of athleticism. And so what they can do now, like, like puts like a lot of the guys from the 80s to shame. Um, like it is just, it's sick if you look at it, stuff on YouTube.
0: That's a really good point because I feel like one of the things, and it goes to what you were just saying, like hip hop and, and really, I feel like the mainstream that covers hip hop on the highest level, you know, in terms of exposure has done not always a great job of covering the pioneers and showing the innovators with it. And you're absolutely right. If that happens with um, breaking, what a shame to cover it at its point now and not do justice to, you know, the,
1: the, the history. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so it is athletic now uh, It's always athletic, uh, but it's, it's like, it is showcasing like some of the world's finest athletes now, but there's something that still makes me wonder, should it be considered a sport? You know, it was definitely a competition. And it was a way to showcase like your dominance over like your competitors. Uh, and I guess that's what all athletics boiled down to be, but something makes it feel like it's being um, gamified, you know, yeah. um, you know, now instead of like a part of a culture, because it's part of a culture. I can't think of, uh, you know, I guess some people would say that football is part of a, you know American culture and like, and so forth, but, uh, so I don't know. I'm split. I'm, I'm happy to see to the, to the recognition. And I guess to your point, it really depends on how they handle it. If they showcase it in a way that, that respects the roots and, you know, the music and things like that, then great. If it seems, um, you know, corny for lack of a better word, then, you know, I don't know. We'll see.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm curious. I, I think that, you know, breakin has a chance to be more universal sometimes than rapping or, or, or you know, scratching, you know, DJing or, uh, you know, graffiti only because like I said, it cuts through language. I mean, you can, you can, you can cut, you know, drums and, you know, do it in an interesting way, but there's always going to be like when you watch DJ battles at DMC or, you know, ITF or whatever, there's always vocal elements in there. And I often think, you know, hip hop is an American art form. You know, we, I don't know how much we consider, you know, what's going on in Japan or what's going on in Eastern Europe or or wherever. I mean, we're so, but dance is different and it really gives an opportunity. And what I hope for is more recognition, um, hip hop being covered for other generations that are still, you know, learning to appreciate its merits Um, because everyone watches the Olympics, you know, it seems like. And what I also hope, too, is it lights a fire under, you know, the American team um, to go up and, and show and prove, you know, as as the place where it comes from. Um, yeah. And at the yeah. same time, bond with, you know, all those other countries that have taken it and, and really innovated.
1: So it has not come without controversy. You know, uh, I mentioned Rocksteady Crew and what they've done. They were obviously prominently featured in Beat Street and, you know, for many Uh, the most recognizable member of Rocksteady Crew is Crazy Legs. And so he is, uh, as of now, going to be involved, I think as a judge or in some other capacity. But that's been called into question now amidst allegations of sexual harassment. Man, I
0: didn't even know that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, So, um, you know, he's denied them. um, But, you know, there is a petition that has been signed by many people, uh, many... uh, 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 alleging that he uh, has harassed them over the years, mm. um, pictures and, and other things, and so um, we'll see how that plays out. But yeah, you know, um, regardless, you know the fact that um, hip hop is once again on the main stage globally, I think is a phenomenal thing. And um, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I hope it's executed in a way that really respects the culture.
0: Absolutely, me too, man. You know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, uh, President Barack Obama, you know, at an interesting time in American politics to begin with, you know, has released, uh, a Wait, new book. So before we get oh, yeah. To that,
1: but, uh, you know, since we're on the sports category, uh, oh, word. A major announcement related to baseball this week. So, uh, and I know baseball is like, you know, cars and baseball are your two <laughs> passions. People may steal yeah. but like, <laughs> uh, but, you know, and by the way, the last two weeks, what's going on? But anyway, uh. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Hey man, (laughs) uh, fair is fair. uh, Baseball is some major news uh, announced this week.
0: Yeah. You know, um, and and it's funny you mentioned kind of the, uh, the revision history that the Grammys are doing and putting the hip hop pioneers in Um, according to the bleacher report, you know, the stats of the Negro leagues are now going to be considered um, along with, you know, traditional MLB and, that's really, really, really important because if you know anything um, about the history, um, what players in you know the Negro Leagues accomplished is is remarkable, with less resources, uh, shorter benches, things like that. And it's funny when I, when I, when I saw that news, I, um, you know, I thought of uh, ultramagnetic MCs, you know, on the Four Horsemen album. They have you know a really um, dope joint. And, you know, Cool Keith is actually a huge baseball fan. And when we interviewed him, when I interviewed him last year, we talked a lot about baseball. He, like, doesn't miss a a Yankees game um, and all that. But the joint, of course, was Saga of of Dandy, the Devil, and Day. And if anyone isn't familiar with the hardships and the crazy circumstances that these athletes, like Cool Papa Bell, Satchel Paige, you know, Josh Gibson, so on and so forth, endured, listen to that song. I mean it it really and I love the fact that you know we have hip-hop voices that told that history so I I love that and you mentioned the Steelers I mean being a Pittsburgh native we had the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords which are two legendary teams in let's be honest I mean Pittsburgh is not New York or LA so there's a lot of really important history in um, in my backyard literally right now where that took place so I just think it's great um, when I'm I've been in the Hall of Fame two times and I would love to go back if there's a special exhibit.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's an amazing thing. Um, you know, again, it's validation. That's the theme of, of, of today's show. You know, um, I think that, you know, obviously there's some of the greatest baseball players to ever live. There was a fear of them. Many people know that Jackie Robinson wasn't necessarily the most talented of the, the players there. He was obviously talented, he was, but he was the ambassador. He was the one, who fit the profile the best and who they thought could um, you know, assimilate into the league uh, in a way that, um, you know, was tolerable for fans, but also, um, you, know, um, you know, representative uh, for, for Black folks. And so, um, but Satchel Page and, you know, so many other greats um, could have easily had that that spot and come in and had tremendous impact as well so
0: guys that pitched every single day I mean now we have you know five guy rotations but you know Satchel Paige would do not only would he play but he would raise money because there wasn't a lot of money in Negro Leagues but he would do these like barnstorming campaigns where he would show up in a town almost as a sideshow act and they would show how fast he could throw a ball or he could hit a certain object because he was that precise and you know now because of health concerns and you know tommy john surgeries and all of that you know in this modern era pitchers and especially are really kind of i won't say coddled but they're really protected and none of that happened back then and then you think about it these guys would play their hearts out sometimes two three games a day and then have to travel really far away to find a hotel that would you know accept them and um you know, we're going to talk about, I'll mention it, you know, as we talk about, you know, Obama's, um you know, press campaign, but I listened recently on Fresh Air, they did a, they revisited a piece on Satchel Page and if anyone's a baseball fan, I encourage them to listen to it, because as you and I use a lot, the word perspective, like, when you understand what Satchel Page went through, um, it'll really make you appreciate him differently in a conversation with, you know, Cy Young and, and the other, you know, incredible pitchers in history.
1: Hmm. That's really dope, that's really dope. So yeah, um, you mentioned Obama's press campaign and uh, he was on Deza and Merrill uh, this past week. You know, I've been watching, it. I think, you know, one of the earliest things I saw in this campaign, and I don't think I even realized it was for the campaign at that point for his new book, um, was uh, uninterrupted. when I mean, he did that show with LeBron and Maverick Carter, um, shot incredibly well. And just seeing the press interact with LeBron like that was, was amazing. Uh, that one, though, was done in separate locations. You know, he wasn't in the shop with them. Um, they, they, they all kind of did it remotely. Um, for this one, um, he was on Jesus and Merrill, and it was shot at Howard in their, their library, Howard University in their library. And seeing the three of them, you know, those dudes and their tims their and, like, you know, um, I think they had on tims. I can't remember. And they expected him to come in Thames <laughs> and, and sneakers. He had said that he might... Uh, yeah. It was really amazing, you know, just seeing, you know, first of all, just for them, what a huge look it is. He said, y'all blew up. Uh, Like, I mean, and obviously they had because otherwise he wouldn't be be on the show. And for these guys to have started with a podcast, you know, seven, eight years ago and grow it into a franchise that now features the president, former president of the United States is amazing. Um, But then for him to be as laid back as he is, you know, they call him Barack and Barry often throughout the show, never do they call him Mr. President, you know, and it's not a lack of respect. It's a, um, it's a familiarity that he has like welcomed, uh, you know, and um, you know, just to see them sit back and, you know, speak as, as men, as opposed to the formal thing was great. Um, And he's like, you know, he's giving them shit, like, throughout, like, uh, he's, like, you know, like, um, you know, like, um, you know he, they showed some basketball highlights of Deezus and Merrill playing against Corey Booker, and, you know, they're shooting air balls left and right, and he says, well, the good news is, you guys can still be on Knicks, you know, like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah, he, like, hammers the Knicks a few times, I'm imagining Chuck Dolan is, like, <laughs> feeling kind of yeah. some kind of way after seeing that, but... Uh, it's tremendous, man. Um, so for them, it's a great look. Again, it is another validation for hip-hop, right? Like for the president of the United States or former president to go on these platforms that are so uh, um, unapologetically hip-hop uh, shows the power that it has. Yeah. And he's clearly trying to reach a certain audience. It's very calculated about that. It's very targeted, I'm sure. Um, but he never panders.
0: I mean, that's what's so dope. And, you know, even at times when you know, over those eight years, I think where people were critical of Barack Obama, just for little, you know, little and big things, but like, he never is inauthentic, and more than any person I can think of in my lifetime, you know? That's
1: true, but also, like, you know, uh, he does adjust how he behaves for different audiences, Mm -hmm. and he also throws in, like, little codes here and there, like, we all knew what the, like, you know, him brushing his shoulder meant, like, uh, back in the day. Uh, but the people in the audience at the time might not have. We knew that was a reference to, you know, uh, Dirt Off his Shoulder, and the Jay-Z thing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can see when he's in a black church, he adopts a slightly different cadence. And when he's at Ben's, you know, things like that. It's not inauthentic. It's, it, it's a, you know, it's just like how when I'm talking to my mom. Uh, my 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 cadence gets slower. Like a little bit of a southern accent comes out, like midwestern thing comes out. Yeah. You know, like when you're with your high school friends, you, know, you kind of speak a bit more like you did when you were with them. When you're on the East Coast in New York, you we'll talk a little bit different. So yeah, and authentic. Um, and I wouldn't even say it's code switching. I'll just say that we all kind of are impacted by our environment and showcase different things to different people. We talk differently to our parents than we do to our friends. It is what it is. And so it was cool to see Obama let his guard down a little bit and let that hip hop side of him come out a little bit. You know, he was talking about an artist. Ah, I can't remember. Um, some that he's listening to, but you know, clear he's, he's in touch with the culture and we've always yeah. known that, you know? So that was, that was fun. Oh, it was Nas. Um oh, he wow. talked about how Nas came in to the white house and he was talking about how great Nas was and, and all that. Um, So that was awesome, man. It was really awesome to see. Um, It's interesting too, because previously that was a spot that would have gone to Sway. You know, he's Mm -hmm. done a number of interviews with Sway. Um, uh, And so for him to have um, gone to them this time, almost seems like um, there's a bit of a changing of the guard, you know, um, or at least he's ushering in a new generation of hip hop journalists and, you know, and giving them that, um, giving them that cosign. And so that was dope to
0: see too. Yeah, I didn't see Jesus and Miro, but I watched his conversation with uh, Speedy Mormon from Complex, which took place at Ben's Chili Bowl, another DC landmark. And it it was really great to see. I mean, I've I've contributed some to Complex and and known a lot of the editors and staff over the years. So to watch them get that look and Obama really was personable with Speedy, like clearly had done his research, knew a thing or two. And that conversation was catered to complex, you know, in their demographic. It sounds, you know, with the Tims and, and Ones, you know, Jesus and Miro would fit. And then at the same time, I listened to his conversation, both with Terry Gross and Fresh Air, which is the NPR crowd. And then I listened to him on his wife's podcast. He was the first guest. Um, and every one of those things, you're exactly right, um, of the three or four that I listened to were very, curated to that crowd and that conversation without being inauthentic and it amazes me the wealth of um knowledge you know from all of the important things that we don't know about you know all the uh, classified information but down to sports and music um that you know barack obama is aware of
1: yeah and you know so another person on a really interesting press run right now is pharrell pharrell has just dropped a uh a line of skincare products which when you think about authenticity like pharrell and skincare like everyone talks about this guy uh, looking like a vampire because (laughs) not in a bad way in that he doesn't age this guy looks almost exactly the same that he did 20 30 years ago in the effects video yeah (laughs) yeah and he's creeping up on 50 right he's in his mid-40s like he's not a young dude, he's not an old dude, but he's not a young dude, but he looks phenomenal. Part of it is, you know, he keeps his hair blonde, so, you know, uh, you know <laughs> dudes might get flat for, like, you know, throwing the black in there, but you throw the blonde in there, and, like, it's, cool, get away with it's it. all good, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's part of it, um, and it keeps his, his facial hair very low, too, um, but his skin is flawless. He shines, you know, um, and so he's got a line of products out now, and he's done some traditional things. you seen him on GQ and you know that's to be expected. Interestingly, he did a video for Vogue uh, for Beauty Secrets. It's typically a, a video um, a video vehicle that's reserved for women you know showing their beauty routines and things like that. and he did it and so it's real cool to see him doing something like that and showing guys it's okay to like, care about how you look and, and beautify basically. Uh, But on the flip side, he also did Drink Champs. And on the one hand, you know, okay, that's not so unexpected given his connection with Nori. They've made some phenomenal records, you know, in the past and have like a clear relationship that extends 20 years now. But on the other hand, what Drink Champs is, like, you know, getting hammered and like smoking blunts and things like that, is... Kind of the opposite of what you think about with Pharrell, because uh, in one of those videos I saw of GQ or, or Vogue, he has said the only thing that he drinks is water, and um, and um, there's a there's a, a carbonated water that he drinks too, that's, that's slightly flavored, but so effectively he only drinks water products. But on Dream Champs, he actually imbibes. You know, he's drinking uh, sancerre, he's drinking. Uh, a concoction of tequila and and something fruity um, and some other stuff, and it's three hours. I didn't see all three hours, but uh, you know, I think he probably you know felt the impact of that. And he was, it's it's Pharrell in a way I've never seen before. Mm. You know, I've watched a lot of Pharrell interviews over the years, a lot, you know, from you know uh, I think Sway Breakfast Club, or Reuben, like I, I can't even remember. I've seen so many um, Pharrell interviews, and he's always kind of at one speed you know, yeah he's very intellectual very cerebral um somewhat nerdy um he's definitely engaging He smiles and all that but um this was a different kind of Pharrell. the saint oprah's like, couch no he was laid back and like yeah. you know open and coming with it so it was just really tremendous to see you know him in that,
0: him in that light i want to give just drink champs a shout out right now because i I, you and I were early covers of the show. I mean, we have relationships with both the and, and Nori over the years. Um, and when that show kind of emerged, you know, we really, we really extracted the ambrosia out of those conversations and to watch them make their partnerships and grow. They talk about it on air. You know, Nori has admitted frustration with not necessarily getting a list artists, you know, a plus list artists, you know, Drake, has yet to sit on the drink champs, um, you know, hot seat and, and the like, you know, we haven't seen J Cole on there. We haven't seen Kendrick. um, But what they've done this season, especially that I've really enjoyed is they've taken artists that, you know, might not be household names, never got a Grammy, maybe never even had a gold record. And they've really told their stories with accessibility and care. And this year, especially in the middle of, of quarantine and, and pandemic, Um, you know, recently, like Royal Flush, Mike Geronimo, most before Pharrell, the episode was Core Mega, And I've listened to these, you know, and they're three hour interviews, but they're that engaging and captivating. Um, I just those guys, um, they deserve recognition, because there's a lot of people that are chasing clickbait in long form podcast interview space. And they're not that. Um, And at the same time, you're still going to get salaciousness, especially when there's alcohol or other things involved. But I've really, really enjoyed them taking artists that mean a lot to me and unpacking their story properly.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. You know, um, gotten to know EFN pretty well personally over the last few years. Really, really great stand up dude. Met Nora on a few occasions. Um, I love that they rep just who they are. You know, they keep it 100. They keep it a buck every single time they sit down with people. They don't. You know, they are who they are. And I think that um, you know I've talked about this a lot that's a show where you always have to tune in to the last hour or so oh yeah you know,
0: that's, uh, when, they get that's <laughs> when it
1: gets tuned up that's when it gets turned up you get, the, you get the, the facts out there so it's pretty you
0: know speaking of big drink champs guests over the last year little wayne and that was a that was a huge get for those guys and a great interview regardless of where you stand on wayne wayne's music i thought that was a phenomenal interview i'd never seen wayne in that capacity Um, Not confirmed as far as we understand, but a big news story this week is that Wayne may have sold um, his publishing for a reported $100 million. And that includes um, a lot of the masters that he would have held for Young Money artists, which obviously includes um, parts of the catalog of of Drake and Nicki Minaj. Um, You know, you have a lot of history in entertainment law and you understand things in a way that I don't. Um, whether it's true or not, I mean, what do you think of that?
1: You know, it's interesting because a lot of times you hear as the epitome of a bad deal when an artist gets, uh, you know, taken for their publishing. You know, mm-hmm. um, they they say that they stole my publishing and they took my publishing. It's always it's often cited as uh, an indicator of something of huge value that was inappropriately taken from. So to see it flip now and see artists selling it um, is interesting. So, you know, another high-profile deal that happened in the last couple of weeks is Bob Dylan recently sold his publishing to Universal Music Group. I think it's it's rumored that Wayne may have sold to UMG also. Uh, Universal Music Group is by far the biggest um, music company in the world, biggest on the recording side, biggest on the music publishing side as well. And Wayne has had a relationship with them. For the entirety of his career through Cash Money. You know, cash Money uh, had a pressing and distribution deal um, for a good portion of time, um, you know, which is. Uh, they still would, do, I think. You they, know? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if it's still a pressing and distribution deal or just a more of a standard deal. The difference mm. being that um, with a pressing and distribution deal, um, you basically just have the label distribute your music and um, you give them 15% or so and you keep the lion's share of your, your royalties, but you're on the, the hook for marketing and promotion and all the other things that would make, the, make it successful. I know mean, the cash money, you have that kind of deal. Uh, no, sorry, you no limit, had have that kind of deal. And I believe the cash money did too. Hmm. A more standard uh, recording agreement is you flip those economics and the label keeps the, the lion's share of the profit. But in exchange for that, they pay for everything. And then you ultimately pay for it. You know, yourself, you got to recoup it but they'll advance the cash for that in order to, uh, allow, And a lot of times that's the biggest stumbling block for people is having the capital to get out there and, and you know, get their stuff to the masses. Mm-hmm. It's not a, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Cause there's so much competition. you got to be able to market and you know, all that stuff. So, um, Universal is the biggest and, um, you know, Wayne has been affiliated with Cash Money. who's always been affiliated with Universal. And so it makes sense if you would sell it to sell it to the biggest and they have that relationship. Um, there are different structures of deals. Sometimes you can sell it outright and, uh, you'll just get a big check and that's it. Everyone shakes hands, parts ways and, and, and goes a separate ways. Um, and in that case, um, the, the company that made the acquisition is able to do with the publishing what they want. Um, they'll place it in TV shows, commercials, things like that. Sometimes when you see a placement on a commercial and go, like, wow, like I can't believe that person did that. You know, oftentimes it's their publisher doing it. Right. Um, and if they, they need money or whatever it might be. Um, so there's that aspect, uh, you know, and then every time songs are played on the radio and in, in football stadiums, uh, you know, things like that that get money for that too there's a lot of different income streams for, for publishing which is why it's so valuable.
0: I'm just and- curious to ask you though not sorry to interrupt but I mean right now you know anyone who's a fan of music has heard their favorite artists bemoan the value of music right now because we're no longer living in you know a purchasing relationship with our artists. I mean we are possibly with merchandise and touring you know tickets things like that which is obviously on hold this year but you know, apart from your Adeles and Taylor Swifts, I don't know many people that go buy you know rap CDs anymore or CDs. Period. I know there's a vinyl culture that that thrives. Do you think that the value is going to change in the future? And that's why companies like Universal and this other company that allegedly went in and bought Timberland's catalog and the Dreams—that the value system is going to change with what you're talking about.
1: Well, so that's the thing. So, you know, publishing has always been considered, uh, you know, more valuable than um, what you get paid for the recording. And, you know, a lot of people don't, don't it's a really nuanced thing. So the recording is the, the specific uh, version of the song that was recorded. So, mm-hmm. uh, you, know, um, you know, Lil Wayne's uh, A milli. that record that he made for Carter Three is the record. If someone else were to re-record that, Wayne wouldn't get paid for that record, um, but he would get paid for the publishing, which is the song. So the words, the composition, you know, um, you know, those that's the publishing. And,
0: and that's so, why you see like, you know, legacy artists, a lot of times like 70s, 80s R&B, they'll go and re-record their stuff to, to generate the new record.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So they own that recording. Yeah, because uh, and so you know, so if someone else does a a, a cover of a Millie, uh, they get paid for the record, their version of it. But Wayne gets paid for their usage of the song, like you know, and, and the lyrics and all that other stuff. So publishing, uh, you know, is incredibly valuable in that way. It used to be that records were you, you know, once you bought the album or the CD or whatever it was, you didn't really get money from the record again. Yeah. But now in the streaming era, uh, you know, people get paid uh, per play for the record, too. So records are now, you know, that's why you're seeing, like, legacy artists, when they do verses and things like that, will start getting paid more again. Because every time someone streams that record, they get paid for it now in the new system. So there's a bit of evening out with uh, the value of, of records and um, uh, recordings and publishing. But again, because other people can do your songs too on a publishing yeah. side, it's still a bit more valuable. Um, but your question so, in theory, you know, um, if someone buys your publishing, they're doing so because they believe that they can extract more value from it over the long term than the money they're paying you. That's the simple truth. If they didn't mm-hmm. think that it was going to be worth more than they're paying, they wouldn't buy it. Like, because why else would you want to just for vanity's sake? And so, um, while Wayne might get a huge payday, um, if she were to keep it and also be able to aggressively market it and, um, and, and use it like a, like, like a publishing company would, in theory, he would make more money by keeping it than he would by selling it. But you know, there's a lot of factors. Maybe it's less responsibility too, right? Responsibility. is a lot of work. Like uh, it's a it's a it's a skill set. You got to hire people to do it. Typically, you'd have to pay them a percentage, and like you know, you're balancing that out. So, you know, you can see why he would do it. Um, the question, though, is, um, and I think this speaks to your, your your question is, what's the shelf life of a song? Hmm. You know, and so like a Bob Dylan. Um, you know, his music has lingered for 50 years now, and there's a generation that considers him to be the greatest songwriter of all time. I think yeah. he was, uh, you know, he never, uh, he, uh, he's. I think he's gotten, um, he might have gotten a Pulitzer, but no, I think Kendrick was the first non-classical jazz artist to get a Pulitzer, um, but um, Bob Dylan has gotten something of that ilk before. Um you know, and so, but you know, the question is once the generation who came up with Bob Dylan, um, you know, is not, is no longer around, will people still be listening right. to Bob Dylan music? I'm not sure. Like, you know,
0: well, there, and I think yes. I mean, because to, you know, you look at Bob Dylan's, you know, songs, times they are a change in, or, you know, those are associated with the times they were made in. And I think that that's true of Wayne too. You know, if you want to know what 2007, eight, or nine were like in, a certain subsect of young culture, you're going to need a Millie. You're going to need, you know, Lollipop or, or whatever. And I mean, Wayne, Wayne's catalog, it doesn't, it's not just exclusive to those two years. I think he's a touchstone of our times. And I think that, you know, when people remember that, that, and that's why I think it has value, also true of Timberland.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that's an interesting thought. Like, you know, some rap music doesn't age well. You know, you yeah. talked about Curtis Blow's music aging well. And that's my opinion. Yeah, I I think it does. The breaks and things like that. Some songs, like September, Earth, Wind, and Fire, go generation to generation to generation. They're just they're baked into the culture. Most songs don't do that. Most songs are very, very of the moment and tied to the time. And so, yeah, if you're doing a a retrospective or a film set in a certain era or something like that, you want that. But otherwise, you're not going to hear that song on classic radio or you know whatever it might be. Will Lil Wayne's and Millie be on, you know, um, you know old, oldsters radio in 30 years? I don't know. It's interesting. You know, uh, you know uh, songs like Cream and, um, you know, by Wu Tang. Juicy,
0: you know, juicy, you know, Juicy
1: are now. Those are songs that you'll hear on classic um, hip hop.
0: And you see them licensed places. It was a few years ago, you know, like 10, but I mean, the choice is yours by Black Sheep you know, was licensed to a car commercial. And it's funny right now, you know, G code by the ghetto boys was in that Chrysler commercial with Dr. Dre in it. Um, And now you like right now there's a Cadillac commercial with, I think DJ shadow and run the jewels, you know, instrumental. So you're starting to see brands that are trying to tap our, our culture and they're doing it through cues and, you know, Wayne, Wayne's a touchstone like that. So. Yeah, I
1: mean, Wayne, for a two or three year span, he was the biggest artist in rap music. Yeah. You know, without question. And so, um, does he have records that will be played 20, 30 years from now? I think for sure. Uh, you know, how much is, it, is that worth? Is it worth 100 million? Yeah. You know, is it worth, you know, 50 million? What's, what's it worth? Who knows? But the people who do this for a living are very, have very s- sophisticated ways of valuing. Uh, catalogs, And so, uh, you know, I'm sure they did all their numbers and whatever number they came up with um, is definitely bigger than what was paid. I'm sure. And
0: the, And Wayne deserves value. I mean, regardless of anyone's opinion on him, I believe that Wayne caught a bad deal for so many years. And just because he and cash money settled and Wayne is now, you know, his own business doesn't mean that he received the money that, you know, the headlines said that they settled for. Right. I mean, I'm asking, the game is the game (laughs) and Wayne's um, impact on culture, his reign. If you decide that this is worth more in somebody else's hands than it is to you, take the money. I just want, and and this is a recurring thing that we're talking about a lot. We talked about on the site. I just want, you know, hip hop artists to be um, not in a position of struggle. And I know that Wayne is, you know, an A-list artist. Um, But still, if that was what made sense, go do it, man. You know, and, you know, I always think of the story, you know, when Dre parted with Death Row, he allegedly, they needed, he needed to sell his recordings to Shug for an amount. It couldn't be gifted. So it was like $1. And all of the things that he created while at Death Row were retained by the label and he went and started Aftermath. And you look now, I mean, damn near 25 years later, Trey made the right move, he got off of a dangerous and sinking ship. And I think later on, he's now, you know, reacquired the chronic and things like that. But, you know, sometimes those things that look like losses are much bigger victories down the line.
1: Yeah, you know, I agree with you. Ultimately, it's a personal decision, one. Yeah. And two, it's about how you invest your money. So... Um, Let's say that you know it is a hundred million dollars, right? And Universal can take that hundred million and flip it into three hundred million over time. That's phenomenal for them. Maybe Wayne says, "Look, I couldn't have done that, but I can take this hundred million and I am uh, going to do like Nas and like you know um, and and others and invest my money in tech companies and things like that, real estate, and I whatever. Can flip you know. it into a billion, a billion, a billy, you know. Um, yeah. And so um, ultimately. You know, it's on them to assess that. But yeah, it is interesting. It's a real interesting uh, thing to see. And, and, and to my knowledge, it's the first, if it is true, because it's all like alleged, um, first major hip hop um, uh, catalog acquisition by an artist, uh, for, of an artist. Um, I can't think of any other. Well, Timberland,
0: that, but I mean, Timberland might transcend into pop, especially given his production role.
1: Yeah, and he's a producer. Like right. I, I mean, artist, really. Um, you know, so um, I can't think of an artist whose catalog was acquired of this stature. Like this, yeah. We'll yeah.
0: see if it it comes to fruition.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, a tribe called Quest, uh, it, you know, so Fife has got an album. Um, they they put out a tweet saying that Fife, their his album that was reported just shortly after his death, is finally coming out in twenty. 21 um what what, did, what were your thoughts about that did you see that announcement
0: i did and i'm i'm pleased with it i mean you know we knew that fife had an album um you know i worked with Fife for a period of time in the early 2010s just he was he became a contributor at hip-hop dx where i was the editor in chief and even then he was plugging away on this album and i think we heard um you know on, on combat jack uh you know god bless the dead um You know, there's confirmed collaboration with Redman, Fife and Busta Rhymes, which sounds insane. Like a lot of people have talked about this album. So to now see it be in the hands of a tribe called Quest to release with Fife's, you know, estate. I like that. I mean, that's going to give that album, um, I think, an extra boost of attention. And, you know, Q-Tip, Ali Shaheed Muhammad, phenomenal producers, I think, to go over everything, sign off on it. Because nothing hurts more than when a really meaningful artist, um, some posthumous material comes out and it's just not on point. So I'm happy with this, and I, I think it it carries on that sentiment of family that we saw so strongly, you know, in the last five years with the uh, obviously the album.
1: Yeah, you know, I heard a I heard a couple of things too, and I remember really liking uh, the stuff that I heard. Fat Five sounded in real, you know, kind of he sounded like in fighting form, like mm-hmm. you know, really like great. And so I hope that the beats are, are, are good because a lot of times with these, um, they have the vocals, um, but they don't have the, the beats or they, they recorded it. And it's, it's been, been recorded for quite some time. It sounds dated. Now I think that Buster Rhymes has shown that if you have the right records, they will transcend, you know, any kind of time and sound and you just make your sound. So, uh, but I'm hopeful. I agree. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't want something to come out that, that tarnishes is
0: music up, so. so an album um, that you liked uh, at the beginning of 2020, it's not on our list. I mean, because a lot of great music came out, but, you know, Eminem made music to be murdered by. And, you know, one of the biggest artists there is, period, you know, released as many artists are doing now. We talked about Deontay Hitchcock last week. There's a number of artists that are coming out later in the year or shortly after their projects, releasing basically a whole other album, an addendum to it. M did that with this album. Um, have you had a chance to listen to that?
1: I haven't. I, I didn't even realize that. I'll definitely take a look, listen to it. Um, you know, it's interesting. Um, Eminem's album, speaking of shelf life, to me, don't seem to have a lot of shelf life as of late. You know, uh, his last two or three albums. Yeah. Listen to a couple of times and then haven't gone back to them. Um, so so we'll see.
0: Yeah, and I mean this one the the most noteworthy aspect of it is uh you know DJ Premier um does the scratches and it's a heavy premiere presence, it's more than just like a zigga zigga here. Um but he didn't produce the track as I understand, but on there, um yeah, I mean if if you like the first one, it's it's a lot more of the same. I mean, M is is a sharp MC. I listened to it over the weekend. Um, you know, I, I can't knock it, but I have to say that, you know, I'm at a point in life where, you know, genitalia punchlines and, and things like that just don't strike me. Um, and that's, that's kind of the headspace M is at right now. And he's dealing with a lot of production, um, you know, Ty Dollar Sign's on the album. M is, again, inserting himself into, I think, a, a popular sound right now. And maybe I'm an old backpacker, but I always liked M more as a leader than a follower. And I don't say that as a diss. I just think he's capable of blazing his own lane versus trying to merge a few lanes together to accommodate everyone. But that's my take.
1: Well, in terms of blazing lanes, uh, a couple of trailblazers dropped some uh, lucies this week. One was Doom. Uh, he had a track with Flying Lotus producing it and Thundercat playing on it, which uh, I think is fire. It's called "Lunch Break." Um, I was really desperately trying to add it to the playlist. But it's, not, <laughs> it's not available on DSPs, which is like I, it's, that's a head scratcher to me. Um,
0: Doom's elusive like that, though. You know. Uh, yeah,
1: well, I, I kind of think that this is uh, the people that put it out, but like it's it's available on um, YouTube. Mm-hmm. So check that out. It's called Lunch Break and it is from the Grand Theft Auto Caio Perico um, soundtrack. And the other is uh, one you sent to me as song of the day, Madlib, uh, Road of the Ones,
0: which uh, yeah. is a dope record too. Man, I mean, Madlib has put out so many of these albums that even people that may love Bandana or, you know, love some of the things that Madlib's done on a higher level are still getting to, you know, his whole Beat Conductor series. And as I understand it, Road of the Lonely Ones is the first song of an upcoming collaboration with Fortet. But it's not listed that way on the song. I, I read that in an article. No matter what, it's just a really, um, it's a groove. And, you know, Madlib has been so deft at, you know, one hand making joints with Guilty Simpson and Strong Arm Steady, but on the other making, you know, crazy records with Badu. And this kind of toes that line. It's an instrumental record. I saw some people, I think Jeff Weiss, who's one of my favorite writers, um, really compared it to the stride that Dilla was in with Donuts. And yeah, I've, that has been my most played song of the week, hands
1: down. Mm. Artists that you and I both know and love. Murr's dropped uh, uh, his Love and Rock is Volume 2. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, always look forward to Murr's album. Um, been, been he's given us like ten of them this year, man. <laughs> <laughs> he's been he's been he's been on a, on, a, on a tear this year, which is fantastic. You know. Um,
0: yeah, he released a video with that for the DOC, which is my favorite joint on the album. Um, great to see, and then the video, really kind of pays tribute to um, LA street organizations and also about that album, which one point I want to make, you know, the first love and rockets, which I know you, you and I both, you know, really liked. And I'd known Murs at a distance from years, but when he released the first one, I had a crazy uh, day. I spent with Murs and Dame Dash up in uh, (laughs) up, up around your way up above New York city. Um, That was really cool. And ski beats ski produced that whole album. This one is produced by DJ fresh who um, people may know from his Tonight Show series with like Currency and Mitchie Slick. And, you know, I think Freddie Gibbs, a bunch of different artists. So um, still MERS, but a little deviation there.
1: Yeah. And Pharaoh Monstrop's new stuff too.
0: Yo, I mean, Pharaoh's been talking for years about this album that he had been working on that is very inspired by Ozzy Osbourne, Black Sabbath, a lot of metal stuff. And I think this is the third joint we've had on it. It might be number four. Um, I have to believe that he meant this Project 13, which, you know, has Marcus Machado on it. I mean, they're part of the band, Daru Jones, both of whom I believe are in Pete Rock's um, Soul Survivors Band. Um, I think Parks from the Joe Budden podcast is involved. But this joint, you can hear the Black Sabbath influence all over it. That, uh, you know, f- you know as we really celebrate like Black Thought and Royce and Gibbs and these other guys that have just been doing it Consistently for so many years, I think 2021 um, we're going to really clear the aisle and give Pharoah um more flowers than he's received in a really long time. I just, I just predict that.
1: Yeah, I love the response that we get for every Pharaoh post. He's such a dope MC, such a dope artist. You know, it's been one of my favorites for decades now, and um, he's also one like Royce and Black Thought who I think you know continues to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited. I'm
0: excited. Yeah, that joint—that's that's a rugged one, um, for sure. Yeah.
1: And what? So, anything else? Uh...
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just been a—it's been a good time in music. Obviously, Short and Forty put out the the project with the album, some songs together. It's kind of like a dual album, like you would get back in the '90s when they would take two artists and mix them. And um, you know, I mentioned at the top of the podcast, we caught some flack for not including Conway. Um, you know from a king to a god in our uh, you know year end and great album very very near to my list um, Juvenile Hell with you know Havoc it's my that's my favorite Havoc beat in so long Lloyd Banks kills it and um, you know Flea Lord but he re-released it with five more songs including production from two, Ger- two Derringer joints a joint from Ninth Wonder a joint from Rock Marciano and Hitmaker who is making hits and people may not know or may know that's young Berg's kind of re uh, like he MF doomed himself a little bit and, and kind of came back to the game under a new moniker. I really enjoyed that. And it's, if that's a reason for anyone to revisit from a King to a God, you know, do it up.
1: Word. All right. So.
0: Oh, can I, in, yeah, can yeah. I say one more thing? Okay. I just want to acknowledge, you know, rest in peace to gangster um from Booyah tribe. Uh, Booyah tribe. Man, I mean, you talk about hip hop's enforcers, right? Like, there's always, you know, the Bumpy Knuckles, the Justices, the, you know, even Drake has Back and Not Nice. You know, every movement has um, these guys that I truly believe can, you know, are as greater MCs than they are, you know, imposing figures. But the Booyah Tribe, people know because they were Eminem's bodyguards for a time. They were Easy E's bodyguards, I believe. These guys came in. Um, in the mid-2000s um, when Suge was in and out of jail and kind of helmed the Death Row sound for the Dysfunctional Family soundtrack. But Booyah Tribe, I mean, let's not forget, these guys were on Island Def Jam. They put out um, Funky New Nation. Um, you know, they were great MCs that loved hip-hop and I, you know, are pioneers, especially for Samoan culture, bringing that to hip-hop. We lost Godfather a few years ago and now Gangsta Rid, um, who I never met, but, you know, I saw a lot of tribute posts from, crooked eye and iced tea and different people and from all that I understand was just a great individual and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about um that you know I I hate to see um any of our our heroes go and from what I heard not confirmed but I, I did hear grumblings that it it may have been COVID related which you know we've we've lost a few great ones this year um to the pandemic
1: yeah man um rest in peace to him and to all those that we lost this year it has been a very very tough year in that regard yeah. um, but we got a new one coming and I hope that you know next year brings like great things for all of us it's definitely not going to flip the switch in January but I hope that this time next year we look back on this and it is a distant and um, you know uh, it's a distant memory for us so yeah, but yeah um, so what's your so, song of the week man my song of the week, I was late on the salt tip, you know, S-A-U-L-T, uh, mm. but I love that album. Been listening yeah. to it a lot, heavy rotation. Um, both of
0: them, both of them are, are great albums.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, Rise, I, I, like, I love both albums, but Rise, uh, Untitled Rise is the one that has resonated with me the most so far. Um, there's a song called Sunshine, um, Shine, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, they got a, a lot of gospel influence, gospel chords, gospel harmonies, um, you know, but another kind of recurring theme, you know, Questlove, I, I believe, said this was his favorite album of the year, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, uh, it sounds, I said it was um, Quincy Jones, very Quincy Jones inspired from like the, uh, the Michael Jackson off the Wall Thriller era, which would, would explain the Quest um, Gravitation Tour. It's also got a lot of tribal heavy drums, um, but it's. It, but um, a friend of mine w- took it even deeper and said that Rod Temperton, Rod Temperton was the keyboardist and for, for Quincy on those records and um, a producer in his own right and almost like a co-producer of those those albums. And if you listen to the Sunshine, you'll hear a lot of uh, Baby Be Mine from um the Thriller album Um hmm. uh, number two on that album um a lot of that bass line that that that, uh, that keyboard bass line is um is, is reminiscent of that so that song has been like, like stuck in my head
0: for a while man I played both songs this week but not back to back so I'm gonna run through that yeah 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 um mine you know it's funny every year it seems like you know since before playlisting was a thing you know Barack Obama has released his like you know, songs of the year. And, and you and I, I think we can say, like, for a lot of years, we saw a lot of our competitors at AFH cover that and make big to do. And you and I both kind of, you know, we're like, I mean, this is cool, but it's not necessarily news to us um, because it happens every year. But I was looking at his list, you know, for 2020, which was great. He gave shine to J. Cole, you know, Snow in the Bluffs, gave shine to a Goody Mob album, which a lot of hip-hop journalists don't know exists, that came out with a three-stacks verse. Um, but he had a joint on there that I had played, but not on its own. And I hope I'm saying it right. Iala. Um, it's bracketed as "Family" by Spillage Village with uh, JID and Earth Gang. And man, what a what a powerful record! And and I love what Spillage Village, JID, Earth Gang truly you know all of Dreamville does when they can make songs that are not just bars, 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 but still feel like hip hop and reach you to a very relatable place so spillage village another album that very easily could have made my top 20 i know you and i were i was like yo have you make sure you listen right before the end of the year um great album but uh definitely been in heavy rotation this week and that song just speaks everywhere i'm coming from
1: that's dope well another good thing that came out of 2020 for me is this show you know you and i have always been more behind the scenes dudes we don't like being like um on the video dancing, um, like, you know, some Twitter our, tweeting. Some doing, exactly. <laughs> um, but being able to connect like this through conversation on hip hop has been a, a highlight for me. And, um, you know, so thank you for always like educating me and engaging. And thank you to those who've listened uh, to us regularly, who've listened this far. Uh, and we're going to take a break for a couple weeks. We'll be back fresh in January with season two and what's the headline and, season three uh, yeah season three right yeah right, right uh so and that you know but um, looking forward to it and happy new year merry yeah. christmas happy holidays all that stuff and yeah
0: everybody stay safe thank you so much and uh, when there's something to talk about we'll be here to
1: talk about it for sure all, all right. right peace peace